I'm Peter Todd, a professor in Indiana University's Cognitive Science Program. Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Professor Gerd Gigerenzer, Director of the Center for Adaptive Behavior and Cognition at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin, where I worked with him for 10 years. Professor Gigerenzer is a world leader in studying how people make decisions and how to help people make better decisions in domains including healthcare, public policy, law, and business. He has published papers in top journals including Science and the British Medical Journal, along with numerous popular and scientific books. And he received the Communicator Award of the German Research Foundation for his great efforts in bringing scientific understanding to a wide audience. Gerd, thank you for being here today. It's a great pleasure. I wanted to start off with uh, asking you, when did you decide that you wanted to study how people decide? And when you went in this direction, direction were you first thinking that, that people were good at making decisions or bad at making decisions? When I was in my late 20s, I earned my money playing in a Dixieland band. And eventually I had to make a decision whether to stay in entertainment music or dare to go into academia. I earned enough money if I would have stayed in entertainment music, but it was a risky, the risky decision was to go in academia because I couldn't know whether I ever will make it into and to get a professorship. So that was one of the life decisions that I did and also started me to think about how people make decisions. Eventually, I went into academia, as obviously the result is, and also never regretted it. The question whether people make bad decisions or good decisions will have both. But we have a literature uh, both in behavioral economics and also in psychology, written by authors who like to point out you know, that others make errors most of the time. And the impression is that people are stupid. We are hopeless when it comes to deal with risk. And it has political consequences because if we are hopeless, if we can't calculate probabilities, then it's better not to involve the public in important decisions. And there are even books like Nudge written, which assume that there is not much to be done about the public, so we need to nudge them. It's a form of paternalism, a friendly one, but still one where the assumption is that people are not able to take their life in their own hands, and also education has no future. This is not my perspective, and I don't believe that. And you didn't believe it from the beginning, so when you first went into this, you thought it's time to change how we think about human rationality, human decision-making? I was, when I first read the research of Kahneman and Tversky, I was very much interested in these experiments that appeared to show that people fail in making probability judgments. Now, since I had an education both in statistics and also in the history of statistics, I was aware that many of these questions were of a very peculiar kind. They were asking typically people of single event probabilities. And that was very unusual. It's always a topic in probability theory. What is it about? 
And when we change this into something that's obviously about mathematical probability, that is frequencies, most of the effects largely disappeared. So the problem is not simply in people's mind. It's often in the experts who do not always have a reasonable conception of rationality. You came to the IU campus to give a pair of patent lectures, both of which people can see online at IU's Patent Lecture Series website. In one of your patent lectures and in your book, Gut Feelings, you talk about the power of following intuition in making decisions. That doesn't sound very scientific. It doesn't sound like <laughs> something that you would then spend a scientific career studying. So is it something that can be studied scientifically? Oh, yes. Uh, the problem is rather that uh, intuition has gotten a bad name in our society, except in sports, that's okay, or music. But I've studied with large companies, international companies, and uh, interviewed the decision makers into the executive boards. How often, at the end of the day, the decision is a gut decision. So, uh, first, the an intuition is not caprice, it's not a sixth sense or God's saying, but it is based on much and much of experience, which is in the unconscious. So an intuitive decision is something that is fast in your consciousness, but you don't know why. So when I work with these large companies, the decision makers on average say that about half of their important decisions, such as setting up a factory in Beijing or not, are at the end a gut decision. And again, it's not an arbitrary decision. Typically, the decision maker is uh, buried under a mountain of information, partially contradicting, and if you then feel where, where it's going, that's what's meant. But the same decision makers would not dare to say that in public because there's anxiety. Anxiety about if something goes wrong, you can't explain it, and accountability. So let's talk a little more about that. So who should or shouldn't use gut feelings? For instance, our daughter and many other high school students here in Bloomington around the country now are having to make a decision of where to go for college. Yeah. Uh, this is not something that they've chosen ever before. Yeah. Uh, can they be guided by gut feelings? And, and in general, can we figure out who can and can't or should and shouldn't be? They are mostly probably in a situation where they have little experience, where they may not uh, just trust their gut feelings and rather be better advised to look more carefully where they're going. Huh? And on the other hand, a number of experiments show that experts who have lots of experience are better advised to follow their first impulse rather than think too long. One can demonstrate that in sports. If expert golf players, as a study by a colleague from the University of Chicago showed, if you give them too much time to think, they do worse. For the beginner, a beginner needs time. And what about looking at the decisions that other people make? So would uh, the students be well advised to uh, gather social information from their friends or, or from other experts? 
Yeah, in general, so in the in the good old times, um, also children growing up took some advice from their parents. Now you need parents who who know something about the world, yeah, uh, which was not always, but mostly a good thing to do. To just take advice from your peers can be a dangerous thing because the peers may not ma- know more than you. Again, in general, a gut feeling is a good idea if you if you are an expert on some field. And also, an individual person is not an expert on everything. So a, a soccer player or a baseball player who has good gut feelings may not have the same quality of intuition when it comes to other things, for instance, picking the right mate. So is using one's gut feeling something that uh, we can be trained in? So the business leaders who are using this, can they be trained to do better in using their gut feelings? Or is it a matter of getting more experience? Yes. So there is one training that goes without any rules. Here's an example. Dane Horan is a policeman at the International Airport in Los Angeles, and his task is to identify uh, drug couriers um, which come in with a yeah with a bag full of dollars and fly out with the same bag full of trucks to be distributed in another American city. Now. His task is to identify these people in a crowd of hundreds and thousands of others. We can do that. But he can do this much better, not perfectly, than most of us. I've interviewed him and asked him, how did you pick out this lady that just got? He says, I cannot explain it. The only thing I could say that he's looking for someone who is looking for him. But that's the the definition of a gut feeling, you can do something very well, but you don't know how you do it. How did he learn it? He learned that by walking through the airport together with an experienced colleague for about 10 years. And he learned to look. For instance, the experienced colleague said, Dan, do you see this man over there? And then Horan saw 20. And then slowly he learned to see. But it's without rules. He does not know how this works. There are other ways. For instance, if you uh, do your tie or you learn something else by rules and then it goes into the unconscious, it becomes automatic. That's another way. It ends both in the same. Yeah, it's intuitive. So in some sense, it sounds like uh, an apprenticeship situation would be – an ideal one for yeah. learning some of yeah. these um, yeah. trained intuitions. Yes. And that also has been the case in the sciences, that the old model of a scientist was to learn with an experienced scientist and to learn the techniques and also to learn the things that you cannot really write down. Okay. You also talk a lot about uh, the simple rules, simple heuristics mm-hmm. and rules of thumb that, that people can follow. So can people be trained on those things? That sounds like that should be easy to tell people yeah. a simple rule. But then is it easy or is the hard part in telling them how to figure out what you're applying that rule to? I think one of our most important discoveries was that simple rules can actually lead to better decisions. This is why we wrote a book together. So 
And the a simple rule can be, of course, taught much easier than, say, a complex algorithm. And the simple rule, the power of simple rules is not just that they are fast and frugal, but also they can be highly accurate. And it can be life-saving. Here is an example. Remember the miracle of on the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. So a plane took off from LaGuardia Airport, and after a few minutes, something unexpected happened. A flock of Canada geese collided with the plane. And jet engines are designed to ingest birds, but not Canada geese. They are too fat. Mm-hmm. And the improbable event happened that they flew into both engines, they silenced, and the plane was sailing. So Captain Sullenberger and uh, Jeffrey Skiles, his co-pilot, turned back and they had to make a decision, a life and death decision. Can we make it back to LaGuardia or will we hit earlier in the ground? And then... Do we need to make a more risky decision, such as water landing in the Hudson River? How did they make that decision? One might think they now started to measure the speed, the altitude, the distance, and so on, and then put it into a computer to estimate the trajectory. No. They used a simple rule of thumb, a simple heuristic, which is fixate the tower the airport through your windshield and if the tower goes up you won't make it you will hit in before so this simple rule is faster than all the computations and also it's less prone to errors that you can make in such a situation and it leaves you time for doing more other important decisions here the interesting thing that the same type of rules uh, which are taught to pilots consciously are used unconsciously by baseball players and also by many animals. And that's also an interesting case where there seems to be an evolutionary trajectory in learning simple rules. For instance, when animals such as bats or, or bumblebees intercept a prey or mate in three-dimensional space, they do not estimate the trajectory of the other and one's own and calculate whether there is an interception point in, uh, in space and time. But they just fly in a way so to keep the optical angle constants. And then you get a collision. So that's an example about that simple and smart rules can make decisions faster, safer, and more accurately. But if you now open a textbook in economics or psychology, you will find a very different message, namely a warning of all heuristics because they are allegedly always error-prone and second-best. That's not the case. So it sounds like these simple heuristics and gut feelings don't use much data. But in our modern world, we're increasingly awash in data and many people, many researchers, including here at IU, are are keen to figure out how we can use big data to help us understand and predict the world around us. 
When we enter this world of big data, are we leaving behind any role for simple heuristics and, and gut feelings? No. An important distinction is between a world of risk or a stable world in which you can – where big data is useful and a world of uncertainty that is dynamic, that's changing, that's complex, where big data creates an illusion of certainty. And here you need good intuitions and heuristics. So big data has is nothing new. It has been always the tool of astronomy and the heavenly bodies are relative to our short life stable. And here it's the place. And people have been collecting big data for uh, millennia. It would be a big error to believe that with big data and big computers you can handle all problems. And one can demonstrate that. The moment you have a dynamic world, then the, the computations and the estimation will fail. An example is, think about the last financial crisis. So the banks uh, estimate the capital they need by uh, means that are called value at risk and similar things. And these have suggested uh, that the before 2007 and 8, uh, it will go up and go up and there is nothing to worry about. Uh, and these values which are based on big data, so they need to estimate. A big bank needs to estimate a thousand parameters or thousands and you have a covariance matrix of in the order of million. These methods have failed to predict every crisis and prevented none. So it's, it's actually big data can be dangerous by providing illusion of certainty. I work with the Bank of England in designing simple heuristics that can make the world of finance safer. So there are some situations where big data has helped us in making yeah. predictions, for instance, in, in weather forecasting and arguably uh, IBM's Watson computer system by being trained on uh, great amounts of, of data can answer questions that it was not specifically trained for. So mm -hmm. how do these kinds of situations uh, compare to the, the kinds of financial situations, for instance, you were just mentioning. Yeah. So if you distinguish between a world of known risk where you can estimate things precisely and a world of high uncertainty, then the place of big data is here on the end where you can calculate well, where things are stable. And there's certainly lots of shades in between. But the point I would like to make, if you trust in big data alone, this is the same error as if you trust in intuition alone or in simple heuristics alone. You always need to answer the question, the question that we call the question of in what world is it a given strategy valid and where not. We call this the question of ecological rationality. That is the real question to ask, not to trust in big data, not to trust in any other single tool. We Humans have multiple tools. We call this an adaptive toolbox. And this is one thing that many people have a hard time to grasp. They love the one answer to all questions. There is none. It's an illusion. 
and returning to this idea of, of weather forecasting. So even if we are able to use big data to make good forecasts of mm. uh, what tomorrow's weather is going to be, people still don't have a good understanding of, of those uh, <laughs> predictions, right? So yeah. this is other work that you have, have done, which will connect to, to our next mm -hmm. topic of, of medical decision-making. But tell us a little more about how things can go wrong when we try to communicate data about the weather <laughs> to people. Yeah. So, for instance, you hear in the weather report or in the news, in the radio, in TV, that there is tomorrow a 30% chance of rain. Now, 30% of what? I've sent my postdoc in the home countries and in many big cities, and we have asked the people in downtown, what does a 30% chance of rain mean? I live in Berlin. Most Berliners believe it will rain tomorrow in 30% of the time. That is seven to eight hours. Others believe it will rain tomorrow in 30% of the region, most likely not where I live. Most New Yorkers think they're both nuts. It means something different. It will rain on 30% of the days for which this prediction has been made, most likely not at all. So are people confused? And many of our colleagues have concluded that people are never up to understand probability. That's an error. The problem is not just in people's mind, but also in the experts who have never learned to communicate probabilities in an understandable way. In this case, to explain or to just mention the class to which the probability refers to, days, time, or yeah, region. And if you have a little bit of imagination, you can think about any other classes. One woman in New York said, I know what 30% means. Three meteorologists think it rains and seven not. And she's just as right as everyone. So, in my opinion, we can teach everyone to become risk savvy. And the answer is not just that you can hear maybe pay an expert to do this because many experts don't understand the risks themselves or don't know how to communicate them in an understandable way or have conflicting interests that you better not take their advice. So in the case of the meteorologists, it's just that they're not being trained to communicate in a clear way. If something goes wrong in this world, we usually call for uh, better technology, uh, more bureaucracy, and stricter laws. The one thing, think about what happened after 9-11 or when any crisis, the one thing that's not on this list is risk-savvy citizens. And the reason why so many people do not understand the risks in a modern technological society is not because they are mentally impaired, but there is still no training in school. And also, there are experts who do not know how to communicate in this understandable way. And in addition, there's lots of misleading information that manipulates people into behaving in a way where someone makes money out of it. 
That's great. We will return to all of these issues specifically in the domain of medical decision-making after the break. Gerd, would you like us to go out on any particular song? The Tiger Wreck. That's great. And that is one of the songs that uh, I'm sure was on your mind as you were trying to decide to go into a career in academia or stay in music, and which I remember fondly you playing the banjo to in the VW Golf commercial, uh, which, by the way, our listeners can also see on YouTube. I'm speaking today with Professor Gerd Gigerenzer about his work on how to help people make better decisions. In your other patent lecture, which people can see online, you talked about applications of good decision-making in the domain of medicine and healthcare. Who's making bad decisions in medicine and, and why? So I've been training doctors for many, many years. And the typical doctor in the U.S., but also in Europe, doesn't get training in understanding evidence. So what does a test result mean? What's the evidence, pro and con, yeah? certain cancer screening? What is the benefits of a certain knee operation? And this is something that many people are not aware of. I would estimate that about 80% of doctors do not understand the results of the tests. They get easily confused. And we've done studies with American doctors. We can, most doctors, make the impression that this treatment is something useful or something not useful, just the way you frame the statistics. And that shouldn't be. So, an example. I take one from the UK. In the UK, there is, every few years, is a, the contraceptive pills care. And in the most famous one, the medical organization sent letters to their about 180,000 doctors saying that a study had showed that the contraceptive pill of the third generation increases uh, the risk of thrombosis by 100%. 100% isn't that certain? Many British women panicked, dropped the pill, which led to unwanted pregnancies and abortions. How much is 100%? Now, the study showed that out of every 7,000 people took the previous uh, generation pill, one had a thrombosis, which increased to two among those who took the new generation pill. So from one to two, that's 100%. It's the same as one in 7,000. This is called an absolute risk. 
the difference between an absolute risk and a relative risk. So one in 7,000 and 100% is not only not clear to many women or men, but also to many doctors. And this single news has caused in the following year about 13,000 more abortions than usual. So here is an example where statistical illiteracy causes anxieties, harms, and behavior that hurt women, hurt the, uh, yeah, the national health services, and among the few ones who profited were the journalists who got the story on the first page. This is an illustration of statistical uh, illiteracy that is quite regular. And if you, for instance, look at advertisements of uh, drugs, you will often read things like Libiter reduces the chance of getting a heart attack by 50% or so. That's again a relative risk. In absolute terms, it means if 100 people who are in a risk condition don't take the drug, within a certain time, two out of 100 will get a heart attack. And if you take the drug, it's about one. So I think every patient should always demand not only numbers, but also absolute numbers in order to understand what's going on. So it sounds like doctors and uh, drug companies making advertisements are, are doing some of the bad decision-making. Are, are patients um, in the clear? We find that the use of misleading statistics is quite prominent in healthcare. And small effects are touted as huge effects. And then people believe that some drug would have a great effect or benefit when it has only a little one and often lots of harms. The uh, general public in Europe, where we have studied that in detail, but it won't be much different here, is misled about the benefits of the things that everyone talks about, such as mammography screening or uh, prostate cancer. Uh, screening with PSA tests uh, is misled to a degree that's just amazing. And behind that is, of course, there are conflicts of interest because there's some money made out of the suffering of people. And then there is also defensive decision-making. Many doctors, particularly in the U.S., protect themselves against patients as potential plaintiffs by suggesting to them all kinds of treatments and tests, they might never suggest to their own family members. They wouldn't sue, but you might. And then you get a medical system that suffers from overtreatment, over diagnosis that means too many unnecessary CT scans. Uh, in the US, for instance, a figure that I found really emotionally disturbing is that an estimated one million children get unnecessary CT scans every year. And a CT scan, depending on, on what organ it's done, yeah, may have the uh, effective radiation doses of 
100 mammographies or more. That amounts to quite uh, doses of radiation, which in a small number of these poor children will later then materialize into cancer. So often the parents also demand that. So there is a belief that more treatment would and more diagnosis would always be better. No. You need to balance here between what's the benefit and what's the potential harms. So there are many different stakeholders in, in healthcare, in medicine, that you could work on improving yeah. uh, the information availability and the decision making of, like the doctors, the patients, the policymakers, insurance companies, and and companies, the pharma companies, and and medical device companies yeah. that are mm-hmm. that are selling products. Which of these different target groups do you think that? Uh, you can achieve the most bang for the buck in in improving the decision-making that's being done. Now, we have uh, achieved in Germany one thing, that we have now uh, cancer screening brochures which do no longer report the benefit in misleading statistics. That's common all over the world. So, for instance, I'll give you an example. Take mammography screening. The best evidence that we have today is that women age 50 and older, so if a thousand of these women participate in screening, after about 10 years, four of them will die from breast cancer and thousands who don't, it's five. So the reduction is about from five to four in 1,000. So it's one in 1,000 who has this kind of benefit. But... 999 have no benefit, only potential harms, which include operations on breast cancer, which are non-progressive, which the woman would never have noticed. So let's focus on this benefit. You might think that everyone knows this situation. It's very clear in from medical literature, but 98% of German women overestimate the benefit by a factor of 10, 100 more, or don't know. It's probably not so in the US. And the public is being misled by tricks, the same one. So this one in 1,000 is represented as a relative risk reduction. From 5 to 4 in 1,000, it's a 20% risk reduction, often rounded up to 30% or more. And as a consequence, the public is misinformed. I'm giving many talks, typically the the opening lectures to to the medical society meetings, and have pointed out that one of the reasons why the majority of doctors and, of course, of patients do not understand the evidence is because of this misleading statistics. And have said in public that the organizations will lose the trust of the people eventually. And that worked. And after a year, I had to say this for about three years, and then the major medical organization started to axe out all the misleading statistics, and you won't find them in Germany anymore. You still find them in most other parts. And in the U.S., you still haven't achieved that thing. And, for instance, Susan G. Komen reports that women who uh, participate in mammography screening so they report the benefit as a 98% survival rate. This is nothing else than the one in 1,000. 
And I think this is misleading women, misleading the public. And this country has a tradition of liberty and democracy and doesn't deserve such a medical system. So here at Indiana University, we have a, a free healthcare screening program that actually offers a $100 incentive yeah. to get people to simply have their blood pressure, cholesterol, and blood sugar levels measured, screened. Um, how do you think this compares to the kind of cancer screening programs that you've just been talking about? Now, I would advise everyone to take notice that there is medical research mm -hmm. rather than go on rumors or what, what a university administration thinks is the right thing to do. There is a, a systematic review by the Cochrane Collaboration mm -hmm. on whether checkups are useful or not. By the way, the Cochrane Collaboration is an international group of doctors, of medical researchers, and the reason why some of you may not have heard of it is because they are non-profit. They are the most respected group in, in medical science. So they reviewed all the uh, articles that are available about checkups. So the one question is, do people who go take checkups in a regular way have die uh, less from heart attack or second, from any cancer or third, total mortality? Do you live longer? The answer is three times no. The only difference checkups make is that, of course, conditions are detected, too many tests, and people worry on this. You can read this yourself, and then you can make up your own mind, whether you want to go, whether you don't want to go. And I think that's what a medical system should be, inform patients, but also inform doctors who know that. And I would bet that most doctors have not read this study. And this is not just one study, it's a review of all studies. And also, the Cochrane collaboration, uh, the interesting thing is that people in, um, in, in the UK, in Denmark, in Norway, in many countries have free access to the Cochrane Library. So Cochrane is spelled C-O-C-H-R-A-N-E. If you go, I went just to the Cochrane Library here in the States, and they have no access. Like Americans don't get access. Germans also don't get access. Our governments or health organizations are not willing to pay the one cent per person per year, that's quite cheap, for access. Almost everyone in the rest of the world has it. And we can read the abstracts, but not more. I think here, if we want to go have good health care, we need to invest in people, in doctors who get access to medical information. Rather, most of talk in health care is about money and money making. I believe that health care should not be in the domain of business. It is. It should be something like science, like theology, like religion. What Good, a doctor should get a, should get a good salary, yes. But the primary goal should be to help patients. So some people that I have talked with in reaction to your ideas, they also bring up this uh, notion of, of worry. And 
they say that uh, people in the U.S. at least have a reasonably high level of worry that they may have something, like they may have cancer yeah. and then yeah. the benefit of screening is to find out that they don't and then to reduce that worry. Yeah. So that's different from what you were talking about that if you take the, the tests that mm. this may increase your worry. So how do you see those two kinds of, of worry yeah. balancing out? So first, no test is certain. So if you believe that after a screening test, which is negative, it's absolutely certain that you don't have the condition, that's not true. So mammography misses about 10% of all cancers. And so do similar to other tests. Some are much better, some are less better. Take something controversial in this country, PSA tests. So for men, for prostate cancer, early detection. Uh, Richard Abling is the man who discovered the PSA. He in public said that a man should not take PSA tests as a screening test. The test may be good for other purposes, when someone has been operated to follow up, but not as a routine device, because it creates more harm than benefit. So now take this man yeah, who wants to be sure whether he has prostate cancer or not. Now you have two alternatives. You can participate in screening, or you can't participate in screening. And one useful thing to make this decision is to know that prostate cancer, unlike other cancers, is a very common condition. And if you're a man and are lucky to live a long life, you almost certainly will have some form of prostate cancer. It's not the, the unexpected strike. So among estimates are that among 80-year-olds, 80% 80 have some form of prostate cancer. Among 70-year-olds, maybe 60%. Among 60-year-olds, maybe 40%. So it's something very common. But only 3% of men die from it. So if all the men would go screening and the test would detect that, you will have a masses of men who believe that going through the surgery saved their life while it only decreased the quality of their life because many of them end up incontinent or impotent. And I think here again, I'm neither for or against prostate cancer screening. I'm for informing the public in an honest way, which is not the case at this point of time. People have vested interests or defensive medicine. There is a case about a Dr. Merenstein in the U.S. who honestly advised a 50-year-old man about the pros and cons of prostate cancer. Dr. Merenstein believed in evidence-based medicine, which is nothing else than take medical research serious. The man was unlucky, so the man decided not to take the test. He was unlucky and a fast and uncurable form of prostate cancer came and he died. The relatives sued the doctor and the clinic. And there was a jury trial. And the local doctors testified that they routinely do PSA tests. And the defense had the representatives of medical science. And they said, 
every society tells. Yeah, you need to look at the pros and cons, and it's not clear whether this is a good idea. So the doctor did what he should. And then there was a typical jury decision. Uh, Dr. Merenstein was exonerated, but the clinic had to pay a million dollars. So Merenstein, with whom I conversed, said that he thought for a moment that he really cannot be a good doctor in this system. But then he continued, and now he advises every man to take PSA tests. This is called defensive medicine. Despite he knows that he causes more harm than benefit. And here, I think there are three key problems that make it difficult for a doctor to do good medicine. First, I call this the sick problem in medicine, S-I-C, S for self-defense. So you, you uh, advise uh, patients to do undergo treatments and tests that you do not think are really necessary and may cause harm, only to defend yourself against being sued. The second one is innumeracy. As I said, in our study with American doctors, about 80% do not understand health statistics. And the third one of the sick, as I see, is conflicts of interest. So, if I do not advise you to do this test, I lose a certain amount of money. And a medical system that is for the patient should not have these conflicts of interest. And we really need to rethink our medical system that it uh, does not end in a money-making system that is not the best for the patient. So the Harding Center for Risk Literacy that you also direct in Berlin is intended to help try to address these problems and to provide information to doctors and patients and policymakers that will help them make better decisions, including the fact boxes that you have developed to Mm -hmm. convey uh, the risks and benefits Mm -hmm. of different kinds of of procedures and including screening. But when you put these facts out there and they enter and add to the already vast sea of information as we were talking about before uh, that people could be considering, how do you get doctors and patients to pay attention to and, and trust what you're telling them while at the same time you're also trying to get them to question or even mistrust uh, much of the other misleading information that's out there? It seems like yeah. a daunting <clears throat> task. It is a daunting task. But the moment you can explain how that, for instance, take the 30%, which is rather five, the reduction from five to four in thousand, which presented as 20% and rounded up to 30%, I think everyone can understand that there's someone who tries to manipulate you rather than speaking in transparent voice. And what we do in, in, in Germany, at least, and also some of the people who are here in the, in the U.S., for instance, Dartmouth Medical School, is to help people to see through this, the tricks of misinformation. And in my book, Risk Savvy, I have a list of these tricks, so a handful of tricks. If you see through them, then I think this is a good first step to be able yourself to tell yeah, the misleading from the honest and transparent information. My experience is that the fact boxes, 
they are now the first pamphlets who use fact boxes, interestingly in Austria. The Germans have not yet dared. They've axed out all the misleading statistics, but a fact box is really clear. And you can see on a glance what's going on. Interestingly, in the US, uh, Lisa Schwartz and Steve Woloshin have managed to uh, get fact boxes with the help of uh, two senators into the healthcare law, Obama healthcare law, but it's not there who makes them and where they're distributed. It's another way to, you can see, there is, you're right, there are many obstacles. The moment you try to get medical evidence, that's all, the evidence of medical research to the doctors and to the public, there are many in between who don't like that. And I think if we all stand up and stop that, we can do lots. And we have already done some of this. And the Harding Center helps. And for instance, if you have many more people like David Harding, who is a London investment banker, who after I wrote a book that's called Calculated Risk, he gave this all to his 200 mathematicians and people there. And after a talk, he gave me a large check to, to set up this center in Berlin in order to help people to make them risk literate, not only in health, but also in other areas. And I believe that a democracy can only function if, when we have people who understand evidence and know what questions to ask. So your latest book, as you mentioned, is called Risk Savvy. Do you think that people are naturally risk savvy, naturally able to understand the risks that we face, the uncertainty in the world around us, like we are naturally good at making what you have called ecologically rational decisions in some situations? Or do we need to be trained to be risk savvy and follow some of the, the simple rules that you were just mentioning? No, there is an, uh, we all in need of training here. For instance, we need to understand how the medical system functions. That's also important. But on the other hand, often uh, we are naturally inclined to understand risks, but the way it's presented to us yeah, is so complicated and misleading that the reason of our failure is more in the communication through experts than ourselves. So for instance, we have designed ways to help physicians to understand what a positive test result means. And they usually are trained with uh, conditional probabilities that are called sensitivities and false positive rates. And about half of all doctors' minds are clouded because they never are able to tell this apart and derive the meaning of a test result. And we have designed um, representations that uh, help doctors immediately see through and they are the same type of representations we call as natural frequencies that people have encountered before the time of statistics and before the time of books. So there is an argument. If we stick to the time of framing of information that is more adapted to the human mind, huh? then we can help everyone to understand risks better. And there is a tendency to make everything too complex, to have odds ratios, 
to have relative risk reductions, which then also many of the medical researchers with whom I worked here themselves don't really understand, even if these numbers are in their own papers. So what's next in your exploration of how to help people make good decisions? Now here, the, the biggest dream would be to change the educational system because we need to start early and start in school by teaching children in a playful way to ask questions, statistical literacy, good rules of thumb. And for instance, we teach children the mathematics of certainty, but rarely the mathematics of uncertainty, statistical reasoning. We, t we don't teach children how to deal with health, with wealth, with digital media to control them rather than being controlled by them. We could make a difference if we would start early. And we start too late, if ever. So one example, go back to one of the biggest threats, cancer. We talk about drugs. We talk about screening. We talk about genetic causes, but an estimated 50% of all cancers are due to behavior. So 20 to 30% cigarette smoking, 10, 15% to obesity, no movement and other things, and 10% in the US are attributed to alcohol abuse in men, only 3% in women, and already 2% to CT scans. So we could do lots if we start early. It's too late if you tell a 15-year-old, stop smoking. You need to do this before puberty. To make children strong, and they can be strong, to develop some resistance and own judgment before they're being misled by the food industry, by the cigarette industry, and by others who want to make money, and put our children into a state of worse health. And if we would invest the same amount of money, here's a bet, into the risk literacy of young children, compared to the same amount to the development of the next drug for cancer, we would save more lives from cancer if we invest in risk literacy. Thanks very much, Gerd. That's great. I've been speaking today with Professor Gerd Gigerenter of the Max Planck Institute for Human Development. Thank you for being with us. This is Peter Todd for Profiles. Thanks for listening. The program you just heard was recorded in March of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.